there is a difference between being on a team and in the game. Or, or a difference between wearing a uniform and being in the game. If some of you may know this week there was a big game happening in our city. Two rival high schools going at it. And my son who's a ninth grader got to dress out. He got to wear the uniform. Unfortunately, none of the freshmen got to go in the locker room with the team. Uh, they had to sit at their own place, you know. Uh, they weren't getting in the game, uh, but they were wearing the uniform. When I was in high school, there were a lot of guys who I played football with that wanted to be associated, wanted to be on the football field, but didn't want to get in the game. Uh, these guys normally looked the best out of any of us. You know, they would get their fingers taped up. They would get the eye black on. Uh, and one of them, in particular, um, was like third or fourth string. And as some players got hurt and it was his time to go in, he, he said, no, coach, I'm not going in the game. He wanted the benefits of being called on the team, but he would, did not want to get in the game. Christians are called... To be in the game. There is no such thing. As somebody who is called by God. Set apart by God. Brought into God's kingdom. There's no such thing as that person. Being called to sit on the sidelines. It doesn't happen. That as Christians. We are to be. In the game. The danger is that there are those who are in the church. They show up. They're around. They wear the uniform. They identify themselves as part of the team. But they're not in the game. In reality, these folks, really all they're wanting is, is the benefits of you know, what we would call fire insurance, of not going to hell by joining the team. But yet... Our text will tell us this morning that if you're not in the game, you're not part of the team. Peter, in his own way, as he is writing this letter, is confronting what we would call cultural Christianity. That is, there were a group of people uh, that were in the church, that were around the church, but yet they wanted to live life the way they saw fit. They wanted to uh, follow after the desires of the flesh. They were indulging in ungodly things. They were not living the life of a believer. And we see this in our culture and in our day and age, that there are Christians who are Christian in name only. The things that are defining them are not the things of God, are not the qualities that God would say should be in the life of a Christian, but the things that are defining them are simply the name, the uniform. I go to church. So Peter is writing this morning. And let me tell you what his aim is. Let's look at verse 10, 11 of chapter 1 again. He says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, there's a list that we're going to get to Today, 
As long as you practice these things, the things in this list, you will never stumble. For in this way, for in this way, by practicing this list, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So this is a serious text this morning. And what Peter is doing, he tells us in verses 12 through 15, and we're not going to cover these verses, but I just want you to hear uh, what's on Peter's heart and in his mind. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present within you. For I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter is reminding them. He is stirring them up. There is a, he is calling them to action. He is calling them to get in the game. He is going to tell us this morning how we can have assurance, where we can find our confidence, and how that leads to a life that is fruitful and useful in the kingdom. And in order to completely and to really grasp our text, we we do have to, to back up just, just for a minute and to see and to be reminded of uh, the foundation of the text this morning, of, of the list that we're going to get into. And, and you can't read the, the beginning of this letter without realizing and coming to the realization and to the knowledge of all that God has given us. Let's, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The second part. To those who have received, have received a faith of the same kind as ours. You have received it. You haven't earned it. You have received it the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You've received it not by your own righteousness, not by your own good works, but you've received it by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3 and 4, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life, in godliness. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption of the world by lust. We know the phrase that I'm getting ready to offer you. The, the, the reformers uh, use this type of language. Um, that we are saved by grace through faith. What's the next word? Alone. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But then the reformers said rightly that faith is never alone. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But that, but that faith is never alone. There are always works that come with faith, that follow faith. We're not saved by works, but we are saved with works. You understand the distinction there? Your works don't save you, but when you are saved, when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, works come with that. Today we're going to see that God has granted us all these things and now you work. Ephesians chapter 2, Kurt uh, read Ephesians chapter 1, and if we were to go on over into Ephesians chapter 2, we would see that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God made us alive together with Christ. And then culminating in verse 10, that He has done this so that He has called you before the foundations of the world to a work which He had prepared for you beforehand. That you were called 
to work. And now there are two errors that I think we fall into. Yesterday I was out running and uh, there's a, a father and son that I've, I've coached the little boy in football before and uh, I saw them out. The second week in a row I've seen them. They were out with these little remote control trucks. They're really cool. They like climb on rocks and uh, they look like a lot of fun. So they were out on a trail and, and one of the errors that I was thinking about is that God doesn't save us uh, to be like these remote control cars, right? Where he saves us and then all of a sudden we are controlled like a robot or like a car that gets, you know, where we have no will, no effort, no work. It's just God doing it all. Similarly, thankfully, God doesn't save us, bring us into the kingdom and then say, Good luck. And back off. That's not what God does, thankfully, right? I hope you make it. No, 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 no. That is not what goes on. God saves us and continues to give us and pour into us as we work out our salvation. Our text this morning is part of God's work. Our text calling us to work is part of what God does to bring us into um, how we are to approach work and getting in the game. That our text this morning is meant to stir us up. That we see this and it creates a desire in us to, to get in and to do these things. And this morning, this morning... Peter is emphasizing our part. Verses 3 through 11 is one long sentence. And in the section that we're looking at, it can't really be isolated, although we are. So that's why this introduction is so important. Is that what Peter is emphasizing is our part. And notice, notice what the problem is. And in chapter 2, we see Peter going into what the problem is within the church. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. That false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And again, if we were to look in verses 13 through 15, Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. That this is the problem. And so Peter is coming in and he is he's he's coming in and he's trying to help. He's trying to stir up. He's trying to combat false teaching and false knowledge that leads to sin. And ultimately, if that sin is followed, that leads to apostasy. In our day and age, in our day and age, like I have mentioned, there may not be this whole idea of uh, in the church of no second coming, although certainly some people may believe that. However, in our day and age, I think uh, one of the ways to, to, to apply this to us is, are those people who at some point uh, 
made a decision for Christ and then go on living however they want. They go on living however they want. They follow the desires. They just live like everybody else. And what Peter is telling us is that real Christian living, those that are really engaged, who are really Christians, what they see, they see who you are in Christ. When they see that, it becomes so real that they start becoming who they really are. They start becoming who they really are. Real life in Christ is this. It's growing into that divine nature that was talked about earlier in verse 4. So, so that we, we look more and more like Christ because we have escaped the corruption of the world. And so what I would challenge us to think about is what do we look more like? Peter is addressing this. Now, let's look at verse 5. And I think there's a phrase that we, we, we gloss over very quickly that I think is very important, important as, as we are preparing to look at the list and to see what our lives should look like. And in verse 5, it says, Now for this very reason also. So he's getting ready to say, now do this. But before that, he says, now for this very reason also. And for the very reason that he is pointing to is the fact that God has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has granted us his precious and magnificent promises that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Because he has granted you these things, you now have the ability to work. To work. You work. You strive. You look at the next phrase here. Apply all diligence. We see that again in verse 10. And what I want you to see is that by starting it this way, by saying now for this very reason, what we see is that we see that God, God has given us the ability to do the work. That God is at work as we are at work in the work. (laughs) For it's been given. We've been given the motivation. We've been given the desire. And we are to do. Now, one of the examples of, of to think about this, the way that I think about this, following along with the um, examples in athletics, is I had a friend who was a wonderful, wonderful baseball player. I mean, this guy was so good that um, anytime that I come in contact with somebody who knows where I went to high school and figures out my age, if they played baseball, they asked me about this guy. I mean, he was great. He was tall. He was strong. He was athletic. Uh, and anybody who played baseball knew, knew this kid. He was awesome. It, one way of saying this is that he was given, he had God-given talents that uh, the rest of us just did not have. Not only that, not only did he have the athleticism, uh, but he also had a a benefactor of sorts. There was a guy, uh, my friend was raised very poor. Um, there was a guy that came along and uh, paid for him to be on all the uh, best teams. He paid for him to go to the World Series. He paid for him to have uh, specific pitching lessons and coaching lessons and all these things. So he had the athleticism. He had been given all these things to help him become the best baseball player uh, you know, when we would go to the games, there were scouts everywhere. He was going to be drafted. 
this sort of thing. And what was interesting was he peaked around his sophomore year and started uh, dwindling a little bit. And then in his junior year, uh, got his girlfriend pregnant. So he, just, he wasn't going to get drafted anymore. So he decided to go to junior college. In baseball, if you sign uh, a baseball scholarship, you have to stay for three years. And uh, he didn't want to do that, so he went to junior college. You can go right from junior college to the pros. And when he got to junior college, he got in trouble for stealing. Um, And so he got kicked out of college, and his baseball career ended. The problem was, he saw himself as the source and the center of the gift. There was no need to work. He had this. This is the opposite. This is the opposite of how he needed to look at that. Think with me, with all the benefits, with all that he had, with all the God-given ability that he had, if he would have looked at what he had received as a gift, and if he would have been thankful for it, if he would have been overwhelmed by it, and that would have caused him to work at his trade, all of us sit around and think about what could have been. In many ways, Peter, Peter is driving home this same point to us. That you've been given the gifts, you've been given the abilities, you've been given all of these things, now put it to work. And, and one of the things that I think Peter emphasized, well, Peter doesn't emphasize here, but I think is, is just right there. I can't think of this sermon without thinking of this, is the work of the Holy Spirit. That in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, the, the prophets, they prophesy in these times that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will dwell inside of you and the law will be written on your heart. And, and the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus tells us uh, that when the Holy Spirit comes, that the Spirit will guide you. The Spirit will convict you. The Spirit will change your desires, will illuminate truth. In, in other words, as Peter writes this, it's the role of the Holy Spirit in our life that stirs us up. The very thing that Peter is saying he is doing really is what the Spirit does in us. And we see that this is what motivates us. Now, as we look at this list of what we should be doing and what we should not be doing, I think there's two um, ways that we can look at this list and see the Holy Spirit at work. The first thing that happens, I think, is we look at this list and we maybe have this thought. We see that one of the things in this list is uh, for for us to have uh, for us to supply um, uh, perseverance. And we may say, oh, yeah, I need to supply perseverance. And we get encouraged and we we lean in and we 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 do that. We do that work and that we we persevere. we, We provide that endurance we supply it and so that's that's one thing that this list does it it motivates us we look at it and the spirit takes hold of that word and we 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 do it another thing i think happens is that sometimes we look at this list and we say oh i am not good at endurance and that we see this is a deficiency in us and i think this is a gift of the holy spirit The problem and where the enemy likes to attack us is when we see this weakness and we would say, oh, no, I'm not very good at endurance. I must not be a Christian when we begin to shrink away versus seeing, oh, 
this is a wonderful gift of the Spirit to convict me that I'm not very good at endurance so that I can work on it, so that I can supply that, so that I can get it. Any impulse of us when we read a list like this of wanting more or, or, or needing to supply things, any impulse in us is proof of God at work in us. Even conviction is the proof that God at work in us because Satan does not want you to be in the game. So even the conviction of wanting to be in the game or more in the game or whatever we, however we want to phrase that is proof of the Spirit's work in us. Now, let's keep marching forward. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and then we start with moral excellence. I want to talk about this word supply just real quickly. Um, th- this word supply originally uh, meant, uh, talked about a, a choral master. And you may think that is really odd and weird. Later, it became kind of used as a a generals uh, who would supply things to their army. And the word here, if you were going to, in this day and age, sing or play or act, the choral master had to supply you with all the things needed in order to do that. And the really cool thing about the words in this text is that it's not just saying, um, hey, apply what's needed. It's this whole kind of big overarching thing of, Apply in excess or uh, s- supply anything that might be needed. And so as we, as we jump into this, what we see is that this is the work that we are to have, that we are to supply these things. And, and I want to give a, a note of caution here. A lot of people have read this list, and as they go through this list, they think it's this real neat, sequential, building block thing, and that's not what Peter is doing. Peter is using a common literary device. And so in our day and age, the way we should read this is there are some connections of supply this to this, this to this. However, the way we should really read this is that we look at these qualities that we are to have in our life and we look at them and we we hold them as in a mirror and say, "Okay, how do I supply? How do I work these things in my life versus kind of a step by step thing? Another way that we're not to do this is to say, oh, okay, uh, Peter starts with this, and here's the next one, so I need to master this straight before I can go on to the next one. That's not what is being said. He, he wants us, the Spirit, God wants us to look at this and to say, here is what our life should look like. It should have these things and that we should walk in them. Now, I say all that to say, except for the first and the last one. Except for the first and the last one. So let's look at the list. And let's look at the first thing in the list. For this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. So notice that this list starts with faith. Without faith, there is no starting place. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to salvation. And anything you do outside of faith, God doesn't like. We know that, right? And so what we see is that it starts with faith. It has to start with faith. And notice that it ends in verse 7 with love. The greatest commandment is this, what? Love. That all of the commandments are summed up in what? Love. And so I think Peter intentionally starts with faith and ends with love. That this is where all virtues culminate. And so briefly... 
briefly, I want to walk through these. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I want to briefly touch on these so that you can, as, as, you're, as we're reading these and looking at some of these words, that maybe even this morning that the Spirit would um, draw you, that you would desire these, and that you would leave here uh, more like Christ. And so notice uh, the first one. Supply, to your, in your faith, supply moral excellence. Now this word for moral excellence is... Another way to say this would be virtue. It's, it's a rare word, but this is the second time Peter has used it. The first time he used this word um, was in verse 3, and it was referring to Christ, to Him, Jesus, who called us by His own glory and excellence. And I think what Peter is getting us to do here is that he's causing us to look at the supreme virtue, the supreme moral excellence, which is in Christ And so we, as Christians, are to supply to our faith to look like Christ. Starts off with small order, right? Look at the next one. Moral excellence, to our moral excellence, knowledge. And I think here when it's talking about knowledge, it's talking about God's will. That, That we are to know God's will and we are to live out God's will. The next one, self-control. This word has the idea of athletics behind it. Um, Another way, I think an exact translation of this would be staying in oneself. And the idea here is this. Let's say that you were wanting to be an Olympic runner. Unfortunately, if you want to be an Olympic runner, you can't eat ice cream and cake with every meal. You have to have self-control. You have to stay within the limits. You have to stay within oneself. So in order to to, to advance and to do what you want to do, you've got to have self-control. I also think Peter may have been here as he wrote this, looking at those who were out indulging in all the desires that they wanted to and saying, self-control. If you don't have self-control, you're running after your desires. The next one is perseverance. And we know this one. This one is the same uh, idea as endurance. Uh, and this has the idea of know the end. The end is in mind. The completion of your faith, the, the prize that is out here. Now run with endurance after that. And, and that running with endurance um, is not a picture of that everything's going to be great and okay, but knowing that there's going to be hardships along the way. So in the midst of hardships, in the midst of difficulties, run that race of endurance. And then the next word is godliness. Godliness. We saw this word before as well. And we said that you could translate this as uh, pure worship or right worship. Another way it's translated in the New Testament is true religion. Um, In the ancient Greek, this word was used to talk about the virtues of the gods. That we are to be like them. And so here, when it's talking about godliness, it's talking about that God's character uh, is not something that is just to be praised, but it's something to be emulated. That's what godliness looks like. That we, again, we are becoming like Him. And then, next to last one, brotherly kindness. That we are to be hospitable and loving in the assembly and towards one another. And this all culminates, ends in the greatest commandment, which is love. And then in verse 8, it tells us this. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this because it tells us if they are yours, so if they are present, and then it's saying, nope, and that's not enough. They are present. They are there. So you look at your life and you see these qualities. That's the first thing. That's good. The second thing you want to see is that they are increasing. Increasing. This is not saying perfection, but it is saying that we are increasing, that these things are growing in us. And it's also not telling us how much is enough. This word for increasing uh, is also the word which we could say abounding. And the goal here, the goal of the Christian life is that these are increasing in us and are getting to the point which they are abounding in excess. There's no mastering this. The goal of growth is to look more like Jesus and this will happen This should happen over the course of our life until we reach eternity. So, I want you to get this. There is no such thing as aimless Christianity. You know what I mean by that? Of some kind of Christianity that is just aimless, that is just haphazardly walking. No, it tells us here there is work and it tells us what we are to aspire to. Another way of saying this is... um, Uh, There's no such thing, this is my word, of lazy river Christianity. Do you know what a lazy river is? Have you been to a water park? I love the lazy river. You just get on a raft, you just float around, and the current takes you wherever it will. No effort, no work, you just float. I love it that my kids are getting to the age um, where they can go do their thing, and they know dad's in the lazy river. You need me? You just stand here long enough, I'll be back around at some point. Red. Um, that's my kind of vacation. The problem, the problem is if we live our Christian life this way, of just drifting, of just going where the current takes us, the problem is that this text tells us that there's a waterfall. There's a waterfall, and so it gets serious, and it's destructive. And if we're not pressing on towards the goal, if, if, we're, if we're living an idle life, Hebrews 2.1 tells us, Be careful not to to drift. And and as we've talked about this before, the idea here is a ship in a current, or like me in a lazy river, if you're not working towards a goal, you're just drifting. And what our text tells us this morning is that you have to paddle, you have to swim, you have to work against the current. And the way you do that is through these things. Notice the second part of verse 8. If they are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are swimming, if you are paddling, if you are working, if you are doing these things, you won't be unfruitful. And what does Jesus say? You will know my disciples by their what? Fruit. You will produce fruit. You won't be idle. The idea here for for being idle uh, comes from uh, uh, being in the public square or uh, being in a kingdom and there are people that are not working. There are people in the marketplace that are lazy, that are refusing to work. And what Peter tells us, what Peter tells us is that if you 
are not, if these things aren't present and if they aren't increasing, then you are idle and unfruitful. And that is not a good thing. Look at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities, we're going to see the waterfall here. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And when it says here, you will never stumble, this means end of age, stumbling, not making it to the kingdom. And so if we lack these qualities, we are heading the way of the people that Peter is writing about, that if they never turn, if they never repent, that there is a trajectory here that is bad. And notice in verse 9, it says, if we lack these qualities, we're blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. When it says blind or nearsighted, really what Peter is just doing is drawing up imagery of like an eye disease. I don't know if you've ever been around, if any of your children, or if when you were a child, if you remember the first time that you, if you have glasses, uh, the first time that you put on glasses and you realize the world looked different. My brother, I, I'll never forget, he, he, he was never quiet. And I remember the ride home from the optometrist where he got his glasses and he was like, whoa, man. Uh, William, we didn't know it. We were bad parents. Um, had really poor eyesight and had some problems with his eyes. When he was growing up, he wanted me to teach him how to catch a ball, and, and I was throwing the ball at him a lot, and he, it was hard for him. We didn't know all the problems he had, and so when he got that corrected, I'll never forget the day he came out, and the other two boys and I were out throwing football, and he said, Dad, throw me the ball, and I threw it, and he caught it, and I think all of us almost fainted. I mean, it wasn't just a catch. It was like a, Toop. we're like, whoa. And he later told us, he said, Dad, I thought everybody saw three balls and that you're just trying to catch the one in the middle. Right? There was something wrong, and so he didn't see the world as he should. And, and what, what Peter is telling us is that if we don't have these qualities, that's what our life is like. Not only that, are we short-sighted not seeing things as we should, but it says he has forgotten the purification from his former sins. I think this is relating to baptism. And what he's saying by this is that in baptism, one of the things that we know is that it is a metaphor of being crucified with Christ, our sins being put to death, and that we arise a new creature And that we are to walk in a certain way. We have been purified from our sins. We've been created anew. And we are to walk in a certain way. And he is saying, if these qualities are not in you, that profession you made is not real. You have forgotten it. And so it makes total sense that he would say, if if this is where you are, you're in danger of stumbling. But, but... If not, if you are working and if these things are in you and if you are marching forward and these things are increasing in you, notice that he tells us the greatest gift of all. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And the greatest gift that we can have is assurance of our salvation. 
And God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. And the way that we can have assurance of our salvation is if we are working out what Christ is working in us, we can be sure where we stand. Peter couldn't look at his audience and say, you're going to heaven, you're not, you're going to heaven, you're not. What Peter could say was how you respond to the gospel and how you respond to the call of God on your life will prove to you whether or not you are real and it can give you assurance. Now, when, when I look at this, and you can tell I've been coaching a lot of sports recently, and so I, I think a lot of times our Christian life is a lot like kindergarten and first grade flag football. Here's what happens in kindergarten, first grade flag football. Kids get all dressed up. They're ready to go. We've got them coached. We say, we're going to do handoff right. We've practiced this play. We hand the ball off. They take the ball. They see the other team coming to pull their flag. And what do they do sometimes? They turn the other way and start running the wrong way down the field. And what do we do as coaches? What is Peter doing? When he sees us running the wrong way, what we do as coaches is we try to beat them to the other end zone and say, no, 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 go that way. (laughs) You know, one of the things that we always tell the kids, never run backwards. It never works. And sometimes we're like that, that we need that coach. We need the word. We need other Christians to look at us when we're scared and maybe we're we're going the wrong way or not living like we're supposed to, not producing the fruit we're supposed to live. We need that coach just to say, no, 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 no. Go that way. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, kindergarten and first grade flag football players get upset. The other week. Um, last week, Flannery was playing. She's in kindergarten and her grandparents were in to see her. And uh, after the, I, had, I came to the funeral, left at halftime, came to the funeral here, went back um, to get her. She was staying with a the family there. And on the way home, she said, I'm upset. I said, oh, sweetheart, why are you upset? She said, Suji and Boss, my grandparents, they didn't celebrate me. I said, what? Yeah, they celebrate you. I heard them. They were cheering you on. They love watching you play. She said, no, they didn't celebrate me for scoring a touchdown. I said, sweetheart, you have to score a touchdown to be celebrated for scoring a touchdown. Right? But what she needed in that moment, and kids, this happens all the time, where something will happen, something will go wrong. Some kids think every time they touch the ball, they should score a touchdown. And so I've had a lot of kids over the years that they'll get their flag pulled and they'll pout and throw the ball down and just kind of melt. And so what? What we do as a coach is you grab them and you hug them and you say, it's okay, you don't score a touchdown every time, but you did so good, stay in there, keep going, you're doing great. And this is what we need in our Christian life. Sometimes we get frustrated, sometimes we get down, sometimes we get uh, just so, we just shut down in life because we're not what we should be, we're not, we haven't arrived, we're not scoring like we think we should score. We're not being as successful in our Christian walk as we think we should be. And sometimes you just need the Holy Spirit to come and wrap His arms around you and say, listen, it's okay. I'm glad you're out here. Keep going. Keep going. 
The third metaphor that I, uh, the third way that I thought that sometimes life is like flag football is that sometimes what happens, thankfully this hasn't happened this year, uh, K-1 football is tough. It's tough to coach K-1 football. Hasn't happened this year, but there have been times where um, we're running a play and I noticed there's two, pe- two kids on the team that aren't involved in the play. And I'm like, where did they go? And you look over here, and they're fighting each other. Trying to karate kick, punch. Same team. Fighting in the middle of a game. Now, there aren't many things as a coach that I get real disciplined about. But that's one of them, right? So kids are fighting, can't keep their hands to themselves. What I'll do as a coach is... Uh, uh, I, I make, them, make them run sprints and they don't get water that. No, we don't do that in K-1 football. What we do do sometimes is have them run. Hey, run to the goalpost and back. Discipline. Run. You need to run. You need to know that you can't fight your own teammate. You need to know that you can't try to punch a kid or kick them or whatever. You need to know you can't do that. And sometimes God comes along and does the same thing to us. That there's discipline. The fruit that you're producing is, is not good fruit, and so you need discipline in your life. Now, the problem, the danger of this metaphor is that it's cute. And what Peter calls us to, in the point of our passage this morning, is dire. It's not cute. I believe all those things about God. That He hugs us. That He encourages us. That he, His Spirit prevents us from going. And all these things. But you have to know this morning that if these things are not in your life at all, if they're not increasing, that it is vitally important this morning that you get in the game. And that by getting in the game, you will prove, you will gain assurance because you will prove that you are real. You are a player. And I'm less concerned this morning, to be honest with you, about those who desire to be in the game, but something is holding them back. That is serious, and I want to pray for you about that. I'm more concerned about those who don't even want to be in the game, who are content being on the sideline. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I would even pray this morning that if there is somebody that is listening to this, whether in the pavilion or in the sanctuary or at home, and as they're hearing these things, they don't even desire to be like anything in this list. They don't even have a, an inkling of wanting to be in the game. God, I pray that you would save them. I pray that they would become aware of their sin. I pray they would become aware of how great you are. And God, I pray that that their justification, which is solely based on your righteousness, would so overwhelm them that they would desire to work out that salvation that you have given them. God, I am amazed at all that you have done and are doing for us. That not only do you save us, But you come alongside us as we work. You come alongside us and you encourage and you increase our desires and you help us through your spirit. God, I pray that you would do that. God, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me.